Church, we are in our 11th week in our studies in 1 Peter. Uh, this is a letter, just to remind you, written to first century Christians uh, in Central Asia, Asia Minor, what's modern-day Turkey now, uh, to encourage them as they seek to live faithfully to Christ in a hostile culture. If you remember all the way back to week one, Kevin uh, was teaching us just about the letter and what was going on. He said, this is, is written to help people be resilient disciples, to help them be resilient disciples, those who can stand up through trials, those who can be faithful to Jesus through the ups and downs of life, uh, those who can really last, they can make it through whatever might come to them down their path. And that's what we've been seeing throughout First Peter, throughout our studies in it. Uh, in chapter 1, Peter says that in the midst of trials, it's actually possible to rejoice with inexpressible joy. Think about that. Through trials, through suffering, it's possible to rejoice with inexpressible joy. How do we do that? How do we get that? That's what this letter is about, and that's what we're going to see this morning. Now, last week we read... Uh, now, believers are to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. That because of our commitment to Jesus, we will submit ourselves to human authorities under which God has placed us. Well, this week, we, it gets spicy, okay? We turn to the topic of uh, the relationship between servants and masters. But Peter's words, they're not just for them. It's not just for the first century audience. It's also for us as well. And what we're going to see is that we are called to follow Christ into suffering on the path to life. Let me say that again. This is our main point this morning. We are called to follow Christ into suffering on the path to life. In order to see this, we're going to highlight six words or six concepts that come out of our passage that will lead us to embrace this truth, that we are called to follow Christ into suffering on the path to life. We're going to take these six words uh, in pairs. So here's our outline. Okay, we're going to see slavery and submission, verses 18 to 20, suffering and sin, verses 21 to 23, and then substitute and shepherd. Okay, those are our six words that we're going to see this morning. If you are not there, I get there. First Peter chapter 2, we're going to read verses 18 to 25. You can follow along with me. Peter writes this, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called." Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were strained like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Church, let me pray for us. God, this is your word. Would you help us to believe that? 
Would you help us to receive it? Through your Holy Spirit now, would you speak to us through your scriptures? God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord and our God, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. All right, here we go. First two words. We'll dive in. Slavery and submission, verses 18 to 20. We might as well start uh, with the spicy stuff, right? Get right into it. Peter begins, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Now, we need to acknowledge right out of the gate that this is the kind of passage that causes many in our culture to dismiss the Bible as retrograde, backwards, on the wrong side of history. On the surface, it appears that Peter is endorsing or affirming a wicked institution and aiding and abetting a scourge on human history. Now, if you are joining us this morning and you don't know Jesus, you may not feel the impulse of others here who immediately want to contextualize and explain away this verse. You know, pastor types like me uh, are prone to tell you that, well, the slavery in, in Peter's time wasn't nearly as bad as the chattel slavery that we had in the American South. So apples and oranges, let's move on. Now, while that is true to some extent, I don't want to do that this morning because we'll miss out actually on the provocative message that Peter offers us. So let's start by calling a spade a spade and acknowledge that slavery is evil. And this passage was misused by sinful American slaveholders to try to justify and enforce their wicked behavior. We can say unequivocally that the owning of another human life is antithetical to the teaching of the Bible that says we are all made with dignity and in the image of our creator. The brutality and horrid manifestation of slavery that we have in our history is but one example of the demonic and anti-God impulse to degrade and dehumanize fellow image bearers. Now, this impulse has been around for all of human history since Cain killed his brother Abel. I don't know of any culture in the world that doesn't have some form of slavery in its past. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, in Peter's context, slavery was different than what we think of. It was widespread in his world, and it included many who would today be considered or thought more of as, as professionals. So they would be compared to managers of estates, physicians, teachers, and tutors. But even so, there were brutal and despotic heads of households, which is what Peter alludes to himself in the passage. Now, our tendency is to look back in history as chronological snobs. You know, we think we've progressed so far from the savagery of our forebears that we're not like them, and so we think we can ignore passages like this from a brutal and bygone era. We think that we've made so much progress, but here's the truth. While we have let go of that wicked institution of slavery, at least in America, we still dehumanize. We still disrespect or desecrate the image of God in others. That tendency is still around. Now, we can see this in the cruelty, scorn, and contempt that we have for political or theological opponents. We don't treat them like humans. We think because they voted for that guy, they're less than human in their thinking or their moral capacity and must be destroyed. If not physically, then with my biting sarcasm. We can see this dehumanizing tendency in the soft totalitarianism of cancel culture. See, if you don't get in line, then you're less than human. You should be driven from society from your job, from your community, and we don't have to listen to you anymore. We can see 
these dehumanizing tendencies in a lot of our policies as a nation, in our foreign policy when we pursue unjust or total war, in our healthcare policy in abortion, and in some of our immigration enforcement. These policies decimate the dignity and worth of the human life that we destroy or disregard. There's even an ironic and, and tragic dehumanizing tendency in our culture's transgender ideology that in its compassionate attempt to care for hurting souls undermines what a human actually is and in the end does far more harm than good. In all these cases, we can see that the anti-God tendency to dehumanize fellow image bearers, this tendency is alive and well. So if we are at all self-reflective, we will realize the problem isn't the text, the problem is us. Rather than condemning the text, we're actually condemned by it. But here's the amazing thing about Peter's words. Peter actually humanizes his audience in a variety of ways. He does the opposite. So first, he actually addresses slaves. See, in the Greek culture, there were actually uh, many examples of what are called household codes. Different Greek philosophers would write to households and tell them how to operate and live. And, and they would talk about specific relationships, masters to slaves, husbands to wives, fathers to children. However, the Greek writers would only address the masters, the husbands, and the fathers to tell them how to manage their homes, and everyone else was just to get their instructions from them. So New Testament author, or excuse me, New Testament commentator, she didn't write it, she just commented, uh, she writes this. Unlike the Greek writers, Peter directly addresses both slaves and wives, assuming that both have a moral responsibility for their own behavior that exceeds the social expectations of the day. New Testament writers actually subverted cultural expectations by addressing them directly and by elevating the slave and wife with unparalleled dignity. What is she saying? She's saying that in the first century, slaves were not given moral agency. They just did what they were told. But Peter's instructions show that they have dignity and they have the ability to make choices on how they act and respond to their world. He elevates their agency, their willpower. He gives them power over their choices. This is astounding for this time period. But secondly, even more scandalous is that Peter then points to Jesus, our Savior and King, and shows how he was a servant who suffered. This is amazing. Far from validating or affirming an institution of oppression and subjugation and power, Peter calls the people to model their lives after one who lived the very opposite of power, oppression, and dominion. That's our God. That's our model. That's our hero, the servant. Here's the key. I think our specific calling is not to slavery, but it is to submission. Peter does tell servants to be subject or submit to their masters with all respect. Now, again, th this may be frustrating to some modern readers, but Peter isn't primarily interested in overthrowing societal structures. That's not his first goal. That's not his main goal. Rather, he's focused on the transformation of the individual believer and the church at large. But that said, we can reason that, that the assumption of the Bible's teaching is that if, followed to its logical conclusion, there was a group of people, there was a society who actually listened to the teaching, well, then society would be turned upside down. And that's our hope as a people. But Peter is primarily worried about his audience. He's concerned with you and with me. So... 
Don't let the sins of slaveholders stop your ears from hearing from God through this text. Notice how Peter frames our submission. Look at verse 19. He says, For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Our relationship with God transforms all earthly relationships. We saw last week government, this week business or economics, next week family. We are called to submission and at times to suffering in that. So what does Peter say specifically? Well, he says, show respect, honor, even to the unjust. And make sure you suffer for good and and not for evil. Like last week, we're called to do good even in the face of injustice and evil. Our suffering shouldn't be because we are sinning, but because we are doing good. And our submission isn't, well, it's not based on, it's not predicated on the one in authority over us. If they're unjust, we are still called to honor them and show respect. This teaching, I think, has a lot to say about our work lives, our day-to-day, our nine-to-five. First, because we can do good in any context, there is no work that should be considered below us. If Peter can dignify and elevate slaves, then there is no work that we need to fear as, as somehow, you know, ruining my integrity, dehumanizing us, or lowering our value or worth. We can do good in any context. So I am technically a millennial, uh, and so to my generation, who feels that every job must be the most fulfilling, the most satisfying, the most world-changing job, and it should meet your personality and fit your Enneagram perfectly, and to do anything else would be inauthentic or hypocritical. Let me just say, Peter sets you free from that impulse, from that thinking. Work doesn't have to be that. You can work and do good and be proud and know that God is pleased when you fulfill his will by doing good even in bad circumstances. Second, we live under many authority structures in our life and we have lots of opportunities to serve others. And we're called to do good in all of them. All of them. Even when those we're dealing with are unjust, we are called to serve them. There's a a great book I want to commend to you. It's right here. It's called uh, Evangelism as Exiles by Elliot Clark. Great book. He comments on on 1 Peter, but he's writing. He and his family were missionaries in in a Central Asian country, Muslim majority. He doesn't tell us which one. I think it's one of the stands. Uh, But they were missionaries, and now they're coming back to the United States, and he's commenting on American culture and what we can learn from his experience and how we can live out our calling to, to be light, to be kings and priests in this culture. But he, he writes this. Let me read it. It's, it's two paragraphs, kind of long, so hang in there. But let me read this for you. He says this. He says, Peter didn't simply challenge his suffering readers to passively receive the world's abuse, as if that's what it means to turn the other cheek. Instead, we're to actively pursue honor. We're to respect our authorities and dignify our enemies, whether they be deadbeat dads or despots. So yes, according to Peter, we are to honor everyone. He goes on, he writes this, take a moment and turn that thought over in your mind. You are called to show honor to every single person. Not just the people who deserve it. Not just those who earn our respect. Not just the ones who treat us agreeably. Not just the politicians we vote for or the immigrants who are legal. Not just the customers who pay their bills or the employees who do their work. Not just the neighborly neighbors. Not just kind pagans or honest Muslims. Not just a helpful wife or the good father. Isn't that good? Everyone, it turns out, means everyone. We're called to honor everyone. 
Peter calls us to submit ourselves with all respect, even to unjust bosses. All right, there's our first two words, slavery and submission. Let's turn to the next pair, suffering and sin, verses 21 to 23. Aren't you glad you came this morning? You know, those are happy words, right? Slavery, submission, suffering, sin. It's a, it's a bright, cheery topic. Well, in verse 21, Peter keeps digging into the nerve, and he says something even more shocking than before. He says, it's not only that we're called to do good while suffering, but that suffering is actually part of our calling to follow Christ. He says that Jesus is our example, that we should follow in his steps, that we should walk the road that he walked, which was suffering for us. Okay, this is profound, even as it is difficult. And again, the implications of this are many. First, Suffering, including unjust suffering, does not mean that God has abandoned you or forsaken you. If you think the hardship you are enduring is a sign of God's abandonment, you're wrong. Even if it were his judgment, he would have you endure it to sanctify you. But you're not alone. You have not been abandoned. You're not forgotten. You're not forsaken. Look to Jesus, our example, who suffered for you. His suffering and lifestyle as a servant were not evidence of God abandoning him but rather they were the very thing that God called him to. One point, uh, commentator pointed out that the Greek word translated example, hey, this word was used to refer to a, a pattern of letters uh, of the alphabet, which children, they would learn to write the alphabet by tracing these letters. So they'd be given this pattern, and, and by, by tracing the letters over and over again, they would learn the alphabet and learn how to write. So this commentator says this, English words such as example or model or pattern are too weak. For Jesus' suffering is not simply an example or pattern or model as if it's one of many. No, he is the paradigm by which Christians write large the letters of his gospel in their lives. Let me repeat that. Jesus' life is the paradigm by which we write large the letters of his gospel in our lives. And in that paradigm, in that model, suffering had a central place. Do you get a chance in your community groups to compare Isaiah 53 with 1 Peter 2. Some groups I know got to do it. Not all groups got to do it. If not, I encourage you, maybe this week, print out both passages. Isaiah 53, this end of 1 Peter 2. Get some colored pencils and, and start marking out the passages and notice how Peter is using Isaiah 53. It's really cool. But he, he what Peter does, I'm just going to tell you, it's awesome. Um, he takes the language, the verses of Isaiah 53, but he reorders the verses to match the sequence or the, the, of the chronology of events in the trial and death of Jesus. He's saying that this character, the central character of the suffering servant in Isaiah, what's well, fulfilled in Jesus the Messiah precisely in his death. So what do we see in this example of this suffering servant in Jesus that we might follow in his steps? We see three things. Restraint, release, and trust. Jesus restrained himself from sinning. He did not sin. He released the need to retaliate. He didn't revile in return when he was reviled against. And he trusted God through it. He entrusted himself to a just judge. Now, interestingly, the text emphasizes the words, the verbal aspect of his behavior. Do you notice that? Verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. It focuses on his words. Verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He didn't use his words back. Peter recognizes that when we suffer, one of the most tempting ways to sin in response is with our words. But our model, our example, Jesus didn't. 
I mean, let me tell you, that, that aspect of it for me is really hard. <laughs> have you ever been slandered? Have you ever been reviled behind your back and you, you knew what was going on? I have. It's really hard to fight the temptation not to revile in return, to not try to justify ourselves or defend ourselves with our words. It can actually be crazy-making. But more than that, we can then become enslaved to other people's words. We're always thinking about what they might be saying. And then we suffer the unbearable task of trying to defend our own name. But friends, we can be set free from that pressure. We're not called to defend our own name. We can follow Jesus' example and just let truth come out in the end. So I had a, a friendship several years ago that went sideways. It was complicated. There, there were some mental health things going on. But this friend kind of turned on me, and I knew that he was slandering me to a lot of our mutual close friends. Okay? He just was really upset at me and saying a lot. And I felt a tremendous desire to try to explain myself, to, to run down every lie, to clear up every untruth, to try to help paint the full picture. But by the grace of God, I had this moment of clarity where I just decided, okay, I just need to stop. And instead, I would be quiet. I wouldn't try to defend myself. I wouldn't try to vindicate myself because I realized I was afraid of reviling in return. And I knew that I, I wouldn't just paint an honest picture of the situation. I'd probably shade it positively for myself. And I would probably, in the end, end up speaking poorly of him. And so I committed myself either to silence or to only speaking well of him. And this was really hard. I'll just own it. It's hard. And a couple of my other friendships got really weird. And it wasn't until maybe three years later that a mutual friend came and repented to me and said, hey, I need you to know I, I listen to things that I know now were slander. And I believe some things about you that weren't true, and I treated you wrong because of it, and I am so sorry. And if I'm honest, I'm, I wasn't surprised to hear it. <laughs> I mean, I, I experienced a lot of weirdness because of this weird situation. But I was so grateful that truth came to light. But here's the thing. Even if it didn't, it will in the end. Friends, we don't have to revile in, in return. We don't have to threaten. We don't have to bluster and burn and defend ourselves because truth will come out, if not in this life, then in the end before our just judge. We follow Jesus in entrusting ourselves to the ultimate judge. Look at the end of verse 23. Jesus could lay down this example because he entrusted himself to a judge higher than the court of other people's opinions or words. I mean, if we think about Jesus, no one came to his defense. No one spoke up for him. No one advocated for him, but he continued trusting that his vindication would come. Doing good while suffering is the example laid down for us. And the mind-blowing truth comes in verse 22, where Jesus did this while committing no sin. I mean, if we follow this path that Christ walked before us, we will be inescapably confronted with sin. We will encounter and experience the sin of others, and we'll suffer for it. And we will be tempted to respond in sinful ways ourselves. I think many here have probably heard something like the quote that says, if you want to know if you have a servant's heart, watch how you react when people treat you like a servant. The idea is that it's one thing to be a servant on our own terms, to love when we feel up to it, to do good when we are well-rested and well-fed and emotionally ready. 
but it's an entirely different thing to be a servant and do good and love others when the very people we are serving and loving, well, when they treat us terribly. It's easy to be a parent at the start of family vacation. It's way harder to be a good parent at the end of family vacation. Hey, parents know what I'm talking about. You're tired, you're hungry, you just want to get home. Serving, submitting, loving, in the crucible of suffering. Well, it's no walk in the park. The truth is, this calling is almost unbearable. And the reason is that we have a problem that goes deeper than suffering. Suffering reveals our real problem, which is that we're wired to sin. Why do you think COVID in, in COVID life in 2020 has been so hard? Because trials and suffering not only challenge us, but they also pull back the layers and reveal sin patterns that are there and have been allowed to lay dormant. Submission, service, and suffering often expose our sin. And this causes huge problems for us as Christians because we hear the calling to follow Christ as an example, but then we're deeply aware of our own sin. And if you're like me, sometimes we think, well, it's impossible. You're asking me to do something I just can't do. Does anybody ever feel that way? You know, often when we hear, hey, be like Jesus. Do what he did. It's kind of like watching basketball and having someone say, hey, just be like LeBron. You know, having someone say, just, just do what he did. Be like him. And, you know, we may try. We may go out into our driveway and, you know, throw some dirt in the air like he does and do the LeBron dance, you know march down the basketball court, puffing our chest out, try to play like him. But at the end of the day, guess what? I'm not 6'9", 250 pounds of muscle with a 44-inch vertical leap. I can't just do what LeBron does, okay? I can't, and I don't think you can, although I'd like to see if you can. So the instructions to, to go be like him, well, it leads to two possible results. Either we throw our hands up and say, not possible, not worth it, not going to try, or... We can work and work and work and, and study him and, and work out like him and try to be like him and still fail. It seems that the options are discouragement or burnout, weariness. Is that what we're called to in following Jesus? Does walking his path, trying to follow in his example, only lead to discouragement or weariness? Though we may be tempted to think so, the answer is no. And the reason comes in our, in our final pair of words. We have a substitute and a shepherd. Verses 24 and 25. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you are healed. It's not enough to see Jesus as a moral example. We won't be able to do what we did, what he did, if we only look to him as a model we also need to look to him as our substitute. If we want to follow Christ into suffering on the path to life, we need to see that he walked this path first on our behalf. He was not just our example and role model, but our substitute. He stood in for us and took our sins to the cross. And Peter says that the result is that we might die to sin and now live to righteousness. That is so key. Jesus, our substitute, it doesn't mean cheap grace. It doesn't mean he stood in and did everything so we can sit back and do nothing. Jesus' substitutionary death on our behalf means that God has broken into our world in order to transform everything, starting with us. 
He took our sins on himself as he was put to death on the cross. He broke the power of sin, eliminating our debt. But more than that, he opened up to us a path to life. Let me just say, if you want to go back to slander for one second, one beautifully way to be set free is to realize that there's nothing someone can say about you that is actually worse than the truth. The truth is way worse. Jesus had to die for you. The Son of God had to be put to death for you. That is way worse than whatever someone might say about you. Let me just let that sink in. But also, you are so much more loved than you could possibly imagine because he was willing to do it. So just take that. We don't suffer in order to pay for our sins. That debt's already been paid. We don't suffer in order to earn or merit any blessing. That reward has already been earned for us. To die to sin is to die with Jesus in his death. And to live to righteousness is to now live with him in newness of life. See, our substitute, he doesn't stand far off. No, he gets near. We are united to him in his death and resurrection, and he's now united to us in our life. The Bible uses language that says we are in Christ and Christ is in us. To die to sin is to, well, it's to to hide ourselves in Christ, to let his death be our death, to see our old life crucified in him and no more. And to live to righteousness is to receive his life lived on our behalf and to live with him now indwelling us through his spirit. And as we walk with him, we are transformed more and more into his likeness. It's one thing to hear the burden of be like Jesus, but that call comes with it, the power of Christ now at work within us. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. We are called to follow Christ into suffering on the path to life. And following him is possible because he walked that path first. As our example, yes, but also as our substitute. But even furthermore, because he walks with us now as our shepherd on the path that he lays out for us. Verse 25, we were strain like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Peter is laying out a way of living, truly living. See, the world is in this permanent cycle of domination and dehumanization, death and darkness. And Peter says, stop. Stop straying like sheep and submit, serve, suffer, do good, and you will find life. As kings and priests, you will show the world the way life looks in God's marvelous light. This way of life, this path set out for us, well, it's set out for us by our good shepherd who walks with us, leading and guiding us. Our suffering does not mean that God has abandoned us far from it. Our suffering may be the valley of the shadow of death that our good shepherd is walking us through. His rod and his staff can bring comfort. We're called to follow Christ into suffering on the path to life, but we don't follow him alone and in our own strength. He has gone before us. He goes with us, beside us, and within us. And so I want to end this morning with a, a moment of, of silent reflection and prayer. I don't know the state of your heart and mind right now, but God does. So we're going to take some time to tell him.
Uh, it can be a simple prayer like, God, right now I am fill in the blank. I'm tired. I'm weary. I'm angry. I'm apathetic. I'm hopeful. I'm full. Whatever it is, I invite you to, to tell God, name it to him, and, and tell him why you're in that place. Do that now. Father God, our good shepherd, however we are feeling right now in this moment, you have called us to life, to live to righteousness. Remind us of that. Hold that life out before us and help us to long for that life, to crave it, and to follow you on your path to it. Now, church, let's just pause for one second. I want you to get in your head. I want you to think about where you're going to be tomorrow at this time. My watch says 11.13. Okay, where are you going to be 11.13 Monday morning? Get that place in your head. Now let's keep praying. Jesus, our shepherd, would we remember tomorrow at 11.13 that you are with us? Would we know that you have led us to that moment, that your path for us runs through that moment, and that whatever we find there, you have called us to do good, to serve, and submit in the midst of wherever we find ourselves, to suffer if need be, entrusting ourselves to you. Jesus, our substitute, would you help us to die to sin and live to righteousness? Would we see you as standing in for us, paying the debt for our sins, healing us by your wounds, and would we live knowing you are with us to empower us to live to righteousness? Lord, we don't just want to survive, we want to live. Help us to live for you and with you and through you. In Christ's name, amen.